Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning, and welcome to Radio Station 3 Triple R. Uh, welcome wherever you may list, be listening to us, whether that's online, whether it's on demand in the future or even on a podcast. Hopefully it's while you are travelling down to the coast today. Um, it's a glorious day, but we'll get into that later. My name is Cade Mills. And I'm Fum. Good morning. Good morning, Fum. It is a glorious day out there, isn't it? Oh, it's Melbourne fake spring. You know how that goes. <laughs> there has been a lot of that on the socials, the, the fake spring. Fake spring and swooping season. Yeah, swooping season has started in my neighbourhood. Yeah, I don't think there's enough people in my neighbourhood for the birds to get upset about. So. <laughs> well, the magpies, they don't seem to get me, but they get my dog. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, someone's got to take a, take one for the team, so <laughs> to speak. Right. Yes. Yes, we've got a huge show today. Um, we're calling... Well, we're basically jumping across the ditch for most of the show. Yeah, we sure are. We are catching up with uh, Dr. Beth Strain from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania. Uh, and we're going to talk about some very exciting new experiments uh, that she's been doing in seagrass restoration over there. Yeah, and there's stuff happening in um, Western Port as well. So I know Deakin University are doing some work in Western Port. So it's really interesting. I saw the sort of experimental design. You know how academics love to throw in multiple treatments and things oh, like yes. that. But they've been able to get the community on board this as well. So it'd be really interesting to see how, I guess, running those rigorous scientific experiments with community, there's often some challenges with that. So it'd be interesting to hear some of the results Mm -hmm. from that. And then we're going to actually going to stay in Tasmania because we're going to cross to um, Dr. Will White, who will possibly be in his car in his garage hiding from his noisy family. (laughs) And Will is a scientist at CSIRO who basically studies sharks, amongst other things. And we've had him on the show in April, last time we were on together, and he was talking about the great egg case hunt and people taking, sending photos and sending that in. But in the meantime, he's just happen to discover a new species of horn shark. As you do. As, yeah. And I guess that's what I wanted to get into. So for those that don't know, a horn shark is, you know, related, Port Jackson shark is a horn shark. So most people in Port Phillip Bay know of Port Jackson sharks and have likely seen them too. He discovered a whole new species. So I really wanted to get into like, how do you go, how do we not know about these things? Like, <laughs> you can understand the tiny things being overlooked, but a shark? Just, yeah, it's a little bit like uh, the discovery of the Boronon dolphin, isn't it? it like, they've it is, been there a, for so long, really obviously. And I think that's the science <laughs> that excites me the most is the stuff that's sitting under our noses and then someone just pays close attention and sort of goes, hey, look, everyone, you've missed this exactly. forever. Now we've discovered this. So we're going to talk about that discovery and get into what it takes to actually describe, discover and you know, get a shark out there. Um, it's not named after him. As we know, you can't do that in taxonomy, but um, even find out a bit about the name itself. And then we're going to go back locally. We're going to talk to Katia Fridas from Deakin University. So she's been working in the ocean literacy space. Um, and we actually had her on the show last year and she was giving a talk about how she was going to start helping teachers introduce ocean literacy into classrooms because there'd been previous work showing that there wasn't enough of it there and teachers just didn't feel as though they had the skills to do it. And now 
she's created like a pack to help them do it and introducing teachers to it and apparently it's taking off and that's really great and she's also a great advocate for the great southern reef and that's what she's doing she's teaching local stuff in classes so with that ocean literacy it's about what we have at our doorstep and she is also finishing up her phd i believe she presses submit next week which is impressive that she's finding the time to come and talk to us on a Sunday morning. <laughs> she probably hasn't had any sleep for the last few weeks. <laughs> no, she was so relaxed and so calm. She was just doing some edits. And I think she's one of those people that I envy that is just organised. That are organised, yes. yeah, I was going to say. Yep. <laughs> yes. some, some of them are. Yeah. So she's going to come and talk to us about that, but also how coming on to Triple R and the Triple R community actually helped with her project and helped expand what was being done. So that was really exciting to hear that the Triple R community, which those listening are all all a part of helped out and now we're talking about how beautiful that weather is how gorgeous is it going to be for the rest of the week or is false spring a thing yeah it is um so well you know enjoy today first of all because it is a sunday and it is going to be a top of 24 degrees today so really really nice to go to the coast um it's going to be very sunny winds northerly 15 to 25 k's an hour um so god northerly winds that's good for flinders isn't it it is pretty much good. For, well, it depends whether you're diving or surfing. It's good for... <laughs> it's, it's I'm good. talking weedy sea dragons. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it'll be good for Flinders. And there's only a, a few foot of swell, so conditions should be pretty good there. But it yeah, also wonderful. means if you want to go for a surf, there's going to be waves everywhere and they're not going to be too daunting. There you go. The perfect, perfect uh, fake spring day. So for the rest of the week, it'll uh, start dipping down, um, become a little bit cooler with a dip of 17 degrees and rain on Wednesday. And then temperatures rising again to 27 degrees on on the weekend. Ooh. So there we go. Oh, that's grand final weekend when everyone gets that day off on Friday. Yeah. So we've got something to look forward to then. And then uh, for the tides today, Port Phillip heads low tide at 11.21am this morning, high tide at 5.26pm. We always check the EPA beach report, obviously, before we go in the water. And I checked it this morning and all beaches are green. Good to go, people. Beautiful. So get in the water on this beautiful day. I've got, sorry, I've got one bit of news that I'll go quickly. It's a bit of, um, I guess, self-promotion because it's about an event that I'm running (laughs) coming up in October. So Thursday, the 12th of October, to be precise, it's an evening event. Um, For quite a few years, just before the Great Victorian Fish Count, we'd run a presentation night and give everyone a chance to get together and have a chin wag and sort of catch up with some work that's been done around the bay and we're finally bringing it back. So we actually have an in-person event, event, which we're also doing online. If you just jump on and type Great Victorian Fish Count Celebration, you'll be able to get free tickets. But we've got Dr Corey Green from Fisheries Victoria coming in talking about how we actually know how old a fish is. Oh. So fish have ears. You can actually tell? You can. Unfortunately, you need to have the fish in your hands. Oh. <laughs> to do it you can't just look sorry at it fish. yeah sorry fish but like that but you can actually age a fish wow and so Corey's going to come on and tell us about it and i should probably get him on the show because it is something that people go really you can do that and it's using the ear bones of a fish oh and not only oh, can... i was going to say i feel bad for all the goldfish out there that people are going to grab and see how old they are but fish yeah. bones okay yeah 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 okay <laughs> let's not grab the goldfish yes so he's going to come on and talk about that because it has fascinating repercussions for managing fish stocks and knowing a lot about fish and how you go about it then we've got Nicole Mertens, who used to work at VMPA with me, coming on to talk about Blue Carbon. She's now moved on to the Blue Carbon Lab and the amazing work that's being done there to sequester carbon in our coastal wetlands. Can I ask for a, a spoiler? Do you know which fish is going to be featuring on the T-shirt this year? I do. That is why we are talking about the age of fish. So it's the long-snouted boarfish. Yay! Which can actually live, well, it's been recorded to live up to 55 years. 
So that's yeah. a, it's a long time to it sort is. of hang around. So when you start taking them out of the population, it can have sort of run on flow on impacts for the rest of them. So that's sort of what the discussion is around this year is around age being quite important when it comes to fish. And then finally, we've got a commercial diver um, called Brent, which I've only ever met him as Bert. I don't know how we made the jump from that. <laughs> who is actually harvesting Andaria and turning it into a a product that is ending up in restaurants and also turning part of it into like a, I guess, a condiment that is ending up in stores around Melbourne, which is fascinating because Andaria is an introduced species that's a pest. It's one of the top 100 pests around the world and he's actually turning it into a product. And that is so great because whenever, I mean, you know this as well from your work aid and, and for me when I was still with the Eco Centre, you know, as soon as you do pest control, people start asking, like, can we use this for anything? Can we, you know, reprocess these sea stars or Andaria or whatever? So that's really fascinating that that's now happening. Yeah, and it is. And so I want, I'm getting him in to talk about how he goes about it, how he saw the opportunity and, you know, basically the impact that is having. So going to be a fantastic night and the best part is you get to talk to these people afterwards and ask all the questions you didn't get a chance to. So again, that is going to be at the Green Building in Carlton, which is just near the Queen Vic Market. So it's from 6, kicking off at 6.30. And if you just type in Great Victorian Fish Count Celebration, you can come along and join us and I'll be there sort of hosting. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Good morning and welcome back to Radio Marinara. And uh, that was the track All Right by Supergrass because Cade's organised and he knew we were going to talk about seagrass. Well done. The best connection I could make. (laughs) Um, So everybody, also, if you are still to subscribe and uh, renew your membership for Radio Marinara or or the station, please do so because we have our fish names ready. We do. Get, in, get on it on uh, rrr.org.au and, um, yeah, become a member and join the show. Um, that said, Dr. Beth Strain is on the phone today. Uh, she is a senior lecturer at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, and she applies multidisciplinary approaches to monitoring and restoring stressed-out marine habitats. They get stressed out, just <laughs> like we do. And she has researched seagrass and seaweed habitats in the UK, Italy, and also here in Australia, in Tasmania currently. Now, as we know, seagrass meadows provide food, shelter, and also nursery grounds for juvenile fish. So they're quite important for healthy fish stocks, uh, essentially, actually. And they also offer invaluable ecosystem services, such as water filtration, sediment stabilization, and carbon sequestration as well. Now, Dr. Beth has spent the past 12 months testing various restoration techniques, including seed bags, plugs, sprigs, direct injection seeding, all very technical terms. Uh, And these methods have been deployed at sites in Ralphs Bay and the Derwent Estuary in Hobart um, to find the best one for the local environment. And she's joining us on the show from a campsite somewhere in Tasmania. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you, Van. Nice to talk to you and Kate. Yeah, hi, Beth. We've never actually met, but we've exchanged many emails and you've been very helpful for me with citizen science work. You (laughs) obviously love doing stuff with community. Yes, I do. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's a great thing to do. I think it's great for people to be involved in science, really, because, you know, uh, we work with people, really, when we're developing policies. Yeah, absolutely. And you are definitely um, uh, talking to the converted here. Um, Now, Beth... (laughs) 
I've been reading up about about the project, and you know, I just mentioned all these technical terms: seed bags, plugs, sprigs, direct injection seeding. It all sounds really exciting. And but which of these methods that you have tested has actually been the most promising for propagation and restoration so far? Have you got any idea about that yet? Yeah, so we tested all four methods because I guess traditionally, um, you know, people have really focused on transplanting plugs, which is sort of taking a seagrass, you know, a section of seagrass with the sediment intact and putting it into a new site. And then we tested sprigs, which is just taking a little piece of the seagrass and transplanting it. But what we're really hoping to do and what we found quite most promising is really our seed-based methods because I guess these are the methods which are least damaging to the donor populations. And so these are the Hessian bags and the direct injection seeding. Um, so it sounds very technical, but much more exciting. You kind of get a gun and then you just press it into the sediment and push the seeds into it. Yeah, right. And you, you mentioned Hessian bags. It's like rolling out like a grass mat or something? Yeah, a PhD student, Kelsey Fractal, made, handmade all these beautiful Hessian bags and we filled them with sediment and then we put the seeds inside and then we kind of plugged them into the sediment with some bamboo stakes. Because we're really trying to use everything to be um, sustainable materials when we're putting things out. Can I just wind back a second here, Beth? You're talking about seeds. What species of seagrass are you working with and where do you get these seeds from? I'm assuming you don't just order them online from the Diggers Club or something like that. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Not yet, unfortunately. Who knows the future? Um, Yeah, so we're working on Zustra mulleri, which is an intertidal seagrass species, which is ubiquitous throughout southern Australia, basically, and also up into the north. Uh, and so basically we collect the seeds from um, a nearby donor meadow, basically, so a healthy meadow which is reproducing sexually, and then we've kind of picked them up, um, grade them, make sure they germinate, and then put them out. And so I'm just curious because, the, like, the seeds and the flowers, how big are they? How big are these seeds that you're sort of collecting? Like, can you see them with your eye? Are people helping you collect them? And how do you like, actually collect them from the plants? Um, so basically we're just sort of picking them off the plants and people can see them, but what they usually sort of see, most people are not that familiar with seagrass seeds and flowers. They're kind of not what we think of as sort of a beautiful showy flower. They're just kind of uh, change in green colour and you sort of see this fluorescent kind of green colour in the water and we kind of pick them and we're getting our volunteers basically to help us with that because it sort of has a joint purpose of not only helping with the restoration but also teaching people about, you know, seagrass in general and how it reproduces. Yeah, this is really important, right, because you guys have teamed up with Ozfish um, to get anglers involved in the project. Um, so how have people been helping? Like, what's been the interest so far in the project from the community? Yeah, so it's really interesting because here in Tasmania, um, people have quite divided views on seagrass. So some really kind of understand its importance and value it, and then others refer to it as skankweed. So we're really trying to work on that. I've never skankweed heard that one. I did not know you could actually insult a marine organism, but they've managed. Skankweed, wow. So we're working on a skankweed component to try and sort of, you know, um, change their mind, hopefully. <laughs> Um, Yeah, wow, that's that's interesting. Um, And how are you changing their minds and is it working so far? (laughs) I'm curious. Well, we've had three community events and basically we saw kind of like a tenfold increase in volunteers, which is great. Um, And I think it's just basically trying to teach people about what seagrass does, what it doesn't do, and why, you know, they should value it as a marine habitat. Because I guess there's not much known about it generally. 
and you know, people don't sort of distinguish it that much between sea grass and seaweed or even think about what it's doing here in the shore. Yeah, that's right. And it's really the strength of being there on site with somebody who knows what they're talking about and learning from that and, you know, getting your hands dirty and, and seeing all those things from up close. Um, so what, is, what are the, the kind of activities that the volunteers are doing um, that, that are helping your project? Uh, so basically we've had volunteers out collecting um, kind of seeds and helping us collect seeds and kind of identifying what seeds and flowers are and showing them what seagrass we're working on. And then we've had a day of planting with the volunteers, and we really wanted to test what they thought of the different methods as well, because obviously moving forward, if we were to upscale, we will need, hopefully, community help, and we want to make sure that they, you know, like the methods or felt at ease using them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what I always really love about working with volunteers on projects like that is that there is sometimes there is an amazing amount of knowledge just through years of observation of being in that space um, that can be shared from the volunteers to the researchers as well. Um, have you experienced anything like that? Um, not so far. I think most of our volunteers have kind of been younger. Um, but I think as we go through, we'll kind of um, hopefully we'll keep going with the project and get sort of more older generation involved, basically. But uh, yeah, I think there's good opportunity for people with lots of marine knowledge to come up and teach us what they know about seagrass, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. And maybe we can um, yeah change change the uh, the attitudes towards skankweed a little bit more. Um, now, Beth, you also mentioned in a previous interview that I read that one of the reasons that this project can be carried out at all in the spaces that you are doing it is that the water quality in the testing sites has improved. Um, what was the situation like before? Well, I mean, the Derwent Estuary itself has thousands of kind of um, stormwater drains and sewage outflows that fall you know, flow into it. So I guess we partner as well with the Derwent Estuary Program, and there's been substantial efforts to kind of clean up the Derwent um, in terms of its nutrient footprint, um, particularly in Ralph's Bay where we're working. Basically, they're tertiary treating the sewage outfall, and they've re-diverted it to a deeper area. So the thought was if seagrass had died off because of, the, you know, poor nutrient, poor water quality rather, then hopefully this kind of change would help us to replant it. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, that, that really brings back home the message that everything is connected, right? We can't have any of these things in, in, in isolation. Um, and how do, how do people find you, Beth? How do they get on board with the, uh, with the project? Yeah, so Ozfish is running the community events, and so we put it up on Eventbrite. Um, and then I'm happy to advertise it, you know, online through Twitter or Facebook or, you know, we generally advertise, um, get Ozfish to organize our community events and then we come along with them um, to hopefully work with people. Wonderful. Well, Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this really amazing project. Uh, we should really check in in a while again and see where you guys are at. And, uh, yeah, I'll be very interested to see and, and hear about the success of the uh, seeding method. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you so much. This was uh, Dr. Beth Strain from IMAS in Tasmania talking about seagrass propagation with the help of the community. Thank you. Thanks, Van. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Beth. Next up, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Will White about a new species of sharks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. 
Before those messages, we heard from Morphine with the track Sharks, which is appropriate given our next guest, Will White, is a um, scientist from CSIRO who spent a lot of time describing many species, including sharks. Thanks for joining us, Will. Ah, nice to be there. Thank you very much. It's so great to have you back. Look, last time we had you on, we were talking about the great egg case hunt where people are encouraged to log sightings of shark eggs to help scientists learn more about the egg-laying shark species. And we're going to talk about this more later and probably wrap up the show with how that's going. But what we really have you on to talk about today is the fact that you and others have recently discovered a new shark species. I mean, your kids must think you have the coolest job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if they truly actually grasp it. They probably just think everyone does it. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, I guess what I, I mean, the simple, easy question is like, how does one discover a new species of shark? Um, well, it actually comes about through a number of things. Generally, you don't expect to. That's probably the main thing. But sometimes it can be going through old museum collections um, and you sort of happen across something. Um, other more exciting ones is when you're doing sort of deep water surveys and something comes up you've never seen before. Um, and sometimes it's just people actually sending in um, records or species that they find that look a little bit different. And in some cases we have a bit of a um, feeling that something might be in a particular area, might be there, and you actually go looking you know, for a particular species. So it's really varied. And so, like in this case, so the, a paper come out, Species in Disguise, a new species of horn shark from northern Australia. Um, I guess what happened in this case? Was this something that had been sitting around and people hadn't noticed the difference or had a new specimen come in? Like, how did, I guess, the, the light bulb moment? Yeah, was it a yeah, case of Eureka or was it a case of, hmm, that's strange? <laughs> it was a case of Eureka, but a very slow, slow-winded Eureka in a way, in the sense that um, some year, or I was trying to think, probably eight years ago, um, I was looking at, there's a species called the zebra horn shark, which occurs from Japan all the way down to northern Australia. What I always felt very strange with that species was that in Australia it occurs around 150 metres deep down to 250 metres deep, and yet everywhere else um, in its range it's really shallow, and it gets down from you know really shallow down to 50 metres, which is quite unusual. Um, we always thought that was a little bit strange. So there was always this um, inkling to you know we something that we should look at, but it was wasn't really a high priority at the time. Um, and then once we started looking into working on some projects, um, putting genetic samples into for a lot of species in Australia, sharks and rays, what was interesting is that zebra horn shark from northern Australia actually came out closer genetically to the Port Jackson shark from southern Australia, which it doesn't look anything like. Um, so that straight away was a little strange and we thought, oh, we definitely need to look into this more and sort of elevated its priority and I mean yeah it was definitely a long process though because I think it was more than six years ago when we we're in Taiwan that we actually had the chance to measure and examine some specimens of the true zebra horn shark to a naval comparison so yeah it can be a long-winded process and it's I mean a, a probably a good way to it's like a jigsaw puzzle essentially you've got all these different components and every single piece you need to find before you can you know publish the Piece. I think you should uh, change your uh, business card to Dr. Will White, Shark Detective, because that sounds <laughs> like a, a, a lengthy process. It is a lengthy process, and it's, it's fun, though. I mean, you do find some easier ones. You do find some species that you get in a particular um, survey, and it's the only record of that species is distinct, and you might publish on it. 
But then you get ones like this, like um, this one took a lot longer. I have had ones that have taken even longer than that, and I know people that have worked on, been working on some for over 20-odd years. Wow. Like, and the way you described it, I guess, is a jigsaw puzzle. I quite like that analogy because I imagine you're just sitting in your mind with all these scattered bits of puzzle pieces and they've been sitting there for 20, 30 years and then occasionally you get to put a few of them together. Is that, I guess, how it works? Because it sounded like this yeah. trip and discovery was like, well, while we're here, let's just have a look at that as well. Yeah, I think that's what inevitably sends us all mad at the end, is that, you, you know, you always, you know you're going to retire with all these, you know, undone. No one wants to half finish a puzzle. But, you know, the reality is there are some there that will never get resolved. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's a matter of just publishing what you have without resolving it on the hope that someone else will, you know, pick up the rest of that puzzle and finish it themselves. The last thing you want to do is hang on to all the pieces yourself and not show anyone else. Yeah, and I guess that you probably inherit these pieces and they just keep getting passed down from scientist to science and scientists and shared around. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing. A lot of it is to do with collaboration. Like on that Species in Disguise paper, we had um, a scientist from Belgium that was on it, the paper as well. And um, the reason for that is that he was like a expert on the teeth and the denticles that are on the outside of the body on sharks in general, and he just... He had worked on that group before and had collected specimens and had good access to specimens. So instead of sort of leaving another five years until he happened to be able to go somewhere and examine them, we just invited him onto the paper and then it meant that we could get the paper completed you know, earlier. Yeah, and it's great to see. I think collaborations are becoming um, like more common these days and it's actually like the science is jumping forward and leaping bound, leaps and bounds because of those collaborations. Now, one of the things I just wanted to, I guess get you to spell out for the listener is it's it's not just a matter of like looking at the shark taking a photo and going yep these are different and then getting a dna sample like you look at things as you mentioned like the teeth and then you look at coloration like how long does it take and what are the i guess the key things you look at when you're trying to differentiate one shark from the other uh, yeah one of the most difficult things is that every group is different so for example teeth a really really important character for so many species yeah for this one it was not at all. So there's about three or four species within that genus of horn sharks that you just can't tell them apart by the teeth at all. So in that particular case, um, and the same goes with actually the denticles, which are the um, little scale-like things on the outside of the body, um, they didn't differ at all. Um, and then in other species, coloration is one of the worst things you can use, like colour varies. Yeah. <laughs> some animals can yeah. turn colours on and off. Yet they were some of the key characters we found in this because they were remarkably consistent um, and we were able to examine specimens from um, different size classes and found that these few um, colour characteristics you know, were really good. So you have to go into each new group with a completely open mind as to what might be different. So some of the, some of the deep water groups, for example, um, they're finding differences in the shape of the liver and the shape, um, the structure of the intestinal tract are important, whereas on the outside they're just kind of all like deep, dark brown. And it's not to say you won't find a good field character to use, but until you look at enough animals, you don't know whether that is a good character or whether it's just variation within a species. Yeah, and, and I just, uh, today I learned that you can actually use the ear bones uh, or fish to see how old they are. Do sharks have ear bones or because they're not bony fish, they don't have ear bones? They have really, really small, what they call odalith, yeah. They're not really any good to use like they are for bony fish. So the only way of ageing 
well, the main way of aging sharks and rays is vertebrae. In the vertebrae, they have rings, generally not as clear as what fish. So you can age them. It's, um, well, I was going to say, a bit more destructive. Taking odorless out of fish is destructive as well. But, yeah, so there's been a lot of... Um, actually, that's what I actually started out. The first thing I ever did was age and growth of sharks and rays before I started doing taxonomy. Oh, so, well, yeah, yeah. We've already had you on twice. It sounds like we've got a third excuse to get you on. I think you're going to become Radio Marinara's resident shark guru. <laughs> now, I just wanted to um, wrap up by talking about the egg case hunt. One of the things I noticed in this paper is you did compare the egg cases for the different species, so I found that interesting. How is the great egg case hunt? And for those that aren't aware of it, can you just give them a little quick rundown on what it is? Yeah, so essentially um, there's probably about 40-odd species of sharks around all of Australia that lay their egg cases that live in shallow water where you could find them washed up on the beach. Um, And you compare that to much of Europe where there's only about seven species and they're quite easily easy to identify. Um, We put a lot of effort into trying to come up with a way of um, people being able to identify and then try and tap into the citizen scientists, you know, the kids walking on the beaches on the weekend that find these things not only can they, you know, use this app to, you know, work out what species they might have, but, you know, actually log the um, records and might help us work out where, you know, important breeding areas for different species might be. So, yeah, you can um, you download the Shark Trust app, and within the Shark Trust app there's a great egg case hunt project, and from there you can log and log any records and find out what species you might, be, might have found. Yeah, it's actually quite a good app. I've had a look and it's one of those things I didn't realise how much I didn't know until I started seeing all the different ones that were out there. I kind of took it for granted. Look, thanks for your time, Will. You can probably jump out of your car now and go and join your noisy family and enjoy the rest of your Sunday, beautiful Sunday morning down in Tassie. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, Thank you very much. That was Will White from CSIRO. Again, amusing and bemusing us with all these amazing shark. We should, we should have him on every week because all the jigsaw puzzles uh, oh. pieces in his head. I want to know all about it. And it's fascinating. The amount of work that goes into describing a new species, I guess, is what I wanted to try and get across there to listeners. Like, it's it's difficult. It's hard. And there's a lot of amazing people out there doing it. And they should be celebrated, which is why we had him on air to talk. Next up, we're going to have Katia Fritas talking about ocean lit. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the line, we have Katia. She's only a week away from pressing the submit button on her PhD and she's calm and cool enough to join us um, this morning. She's a student at Deakin University who's been doing an amazing job of bringing the Great Southern Reef into classrooms. Welcome back to Radio Marinara, Katia. Good morning and thank you for the invitation to be here with you today. I can't believe you're submitting your PhD and you've got time to come and talk to us. That is amazing. You must be one relaxed, cool, calm customer and probably did well in school, I'm guessing. (laughs) Well, I think, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, I haven't developed the skill of working well under pressure or on the deadline. So, (laughs) yeah, um, I'm about to submit this week, which is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great. Now, look, I'm just going to kick off with an easy question. Most listeners will know what the Great Southern Reef is, but for those that don't, what is it and why is it so amazing? Yeah, so the Great Southern Reef is our local temperate marine reef system 
So it um, spreads or goes across uh, five Australian states, from New South Wales all the way down to Tasmania and then up to Calberry in Western Australia. And it's mainly formed by kelp forest. Yeah, so like, like golden kelp is generally considered one of the... If, if that's there, you're on the Great Southern Reef. Um, what I wanted to know is, like, why did you want to bring this reef into classrooms? Well, one of the main reasons is that um, we kind of realised that um, not only adults but also children um, know or may know a little bit more about tropical reefs, which is understandable and is very important, but we don't know much about the Great Southern Reef, which is uh, the reef here at our doorstep. So our main goal with the Ocean Education Program was to raise awareness of these amazing and ecological important marine uh, system that we have here. Yeah, and look, we've been, as Bron says, we've been banging on this about this for over 20 years here, so it's great to see it getting traction and getting into classrooms. And when I spoke to you in the lead-up today, you mentioned that, you know, Triple R, Radio Marinara, the listeners played a part in helping with your PhD. How exactly did those awesome people out there listening to us help? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for that opportunity. Last year when I was on the radio, I was just talking about this ocean education program was before we start running it. And I guess that a few uh, teachers and educa- educators were listening to it and ended up contacting us to be part of the program, which was fantastic and really helped uh, develop the work for my PhD. Yeah, so look, if you're a Triple R listener and you got involved, give yourself a pat on the back. It gives us the warm fuzzies here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you to all the subscribers. Um, that is that is a really amazing, and I guess it's it's one of the reasons why we do the show, isn't Kate? To isn't it, Kate? To just get people involved and um, uh, uh, you know line up what they can do to to help preserve this amazing, amazing ecosystem that we've got down here it is community show community involvement and it's great to see them get behind now what i want to know is how did the teachers and the students respond to learning about having this amazing thing at their doorstep yeah we got some really good positive results and uh, the main reasons were well going a little bit back like ocean literacy and ocean education is not formally integrated in the curriculum just yet And although teachers do value the importance of ocean education, most of them rarely uh, included marine science topics in their lessons. And the two main reasons for that, let's say they already have an overcrowded curriculum and there's also lack of educational resources. So with this program, our main aim was to provide these teachers with the knowledge and the skills and educational resources that they could use in the classroom to integrate ocean education. So the program was obviously tailored to our uh, unique Great Southern Reef, and for that we used picture books. <laughs> Perfect. And it just so happens that one of your supervisors wrote quite a good book about the Great Southern Reef, didn't they? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, my uh, two uh, supervisors wrote the Great Southern Reef picture book, and we used these books. We, we used actually a collection of six picture books that represent the Great Southern Reef, because it really engages children well, and adults, I should say. And it's already, um, it's a familiar tool for teachers, and so it kind of helped them to build their confidence to teach about the ocean. And Katya, I'm, I'm curious, what, what is your favourite fact about the, the Great Southern Reef that you didn't know about when you started this PhD? I think when, well, yes, that's, that's a good question also. I, I didn't know so many things about the Great Southern Reef, and I'm learning more and more uh, every day. Uh, one of my favorite facts is probably 
the amount of endemic species we have on the Great Southern Reef. So the fact that there are species here that we cannot find anywhere else in the world. So I think that's quite special and a very important reason to protect and conserve this marine ecosystem. That was a great answer on the fly. Like that was completely <laughs> unexpected, that question. You did really well. And I guess it sort of leads on to what I was thinking. Were, were there any unexpected findings like by, by introducing teachers and students to this? Like, Are there stuff that you thought might be boring that kids loved or vice, vice versa, stuff that you thought was exciting that um, they just didn't get into? Or was it just an, an overall there was this um, willingness to or want to learn about you know the Great Southern Reef. Yeah, one of the main, I think one of the main results or positive results we we've got from this work was that children got so engaged and so uh, keen to learn about the Great Southern Reef through the picture books that they then took this knowledge to their homes, to their parents. And so we uh, heard from teachers stories about children going to the beach and being able to recognize and identify the marine life, which already helps to build this connection to the marine ecosystem, but also kind of uh, helps to pass this knowledge to other um, generations. So it's uh, yeah, it was a really good result that we. It's not that we didn't expect, but we were not like um, uh, yeah, we didn't predict that. We were mostly looking at the results with teachers and students, but it was great to know this. Yeah, never underestimate the power of pester power at home. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. And I guess that's what I wanted to. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is: obviously, kids are coming home, and you know educating their parents are there ways like if parents are listening going i want to try to get above my kids are there resources that they can access that are going to help them go yeah i knew that are you talking about yourself kate yes (laughs) my son knows more about sharks than i do he should have interviewed will earlier but is there resources for parents um that can help them i guess you know educate their kids if their kids schools aren't doing this that they can get a hold of yeah, uh, surely there is. So um, actually for this program, we developed a teacher's guide, um, but this guide can be used as well uh, by parents at home. So the guide has marine science activities that are linked to these six picture books that I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and so I think like one important message for all educators and teachers and parents out there is that we don't need all to be ocean experts to teach about the ocean. So we can actually build this knowledge together and using stories, it's a great way to start and a great way to go. Um, Also this, oh, sorry. No, you go for it. (laughs) I just just wanted to say that this teacher's guide is available online for free now. It's on Dr. Prue Francis' website. So it's www.proofrancis.com. Um, so for every parent that wishes to uh, run these activities at home, um, yeah, it's a great resource. <laughs> yeah, and we put a link to it on our Facebook post so people can get a hold of it. Now, look, we've got to wrap up but just very quickly. What I love about mm-hmm. your work and the research is that you're now actually going to be able to unroll this in schools around Port Phillip Bay thanks to Port Phillip Bay funding. So it means that we're not going to hear the end of you. We're going to keep getting you back to talk about how this is going. If there are teachers listening or parents that want their school to get involved, um, is it through Pruse? Is that the best way to get in touch or should we, they get in touch with you directly? 
Yes, uh, with Dr. Pru, Francis, or with me, so now um, our team was successful with the Port Phillip Bay funding, and we will be providing these educational kits for 100 primary schools around Port Phillip Bay. So getting in contact with us through the website is a great way to go. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time, and have enjoy pressing that submit button and um, oh, getting so breath of air. Thank you, Claudia. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you to everyone that joined us today. Thank you to Beth Strain, Will White, Katia and Rachel on the panel. Next week on the show, we're going to have Fom and Ant. They're going to be back. Thank you so much, Fom. And get out there and enjoy that sunshine. Oh, will do. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.